Well, hey, Hills Church, it is an exciting season to be part of this church family. And for everybody who is joining us in person or online, welcome. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers here. And yeah, it's just exciting to see what God is up to between the work that's happening at what will become our Keller campus and being able to finally host our first in-person conference since about February 2020. Uh, And I heard great things about Women's Conference. And then to top that all off, last month we just launched a brand new five-year vision to ask for nations and generations. There's a lot happening. And as I talked with our senior minister, Rick Atchley, he and I were talking about this this launch of the vision last month. And and, uh, for both of us, we just want to say, this has been incredible. Like we, we felt this shared energy as, as we've talked with members in the church, with some of you about, about what God is up to, about what God's calling us to in this next season as we ask for nations and generations. There's a sense of buy-in. There's a sense of momentum by God's grace after a season for so long that felt like things were kind of on pause. And so we want to say thank you. Thank you for affirming this new vision. Thank you for buying in. Thank you for looking ways to pray and to engage as we pursue the goals that are part of this vision. And one of the goals that we are excited about is the the call to become a multi-ethnic church in the next five years. We feel this call strongly as part of our witness to the community, but also as an outpost of the kingdom of God in which every tribe and tongue and people belong. Hills members say amen. And so, we, uh, we're, we're going to take a small but important step today towards that goal. Because we feel God calling us as a local church to make progress in the area of becoming a multi-ethnic church. And yet it is hard to make progress if you don't know where you stand today. And so I want to invite everybody who's live at one of our campuses to uh, pull, out, pull out your phone right now. We're going to take a small but important step uh, right now. A little church family meeting moment. We are going to ask you to participate in a very short three-question survey. Now, I'll be the first to say, surveys are not perfect by any means, but they can be helpful to give a little bit of a snapshot of where we are today as a church. And so you're going to be able to see up on the screen a QR code that you can, you can use your, your camera app or a QR reader on your phone and be able to get to that. If you prefer uh, old school paper and pen, we've got that in seatbacks around you, paper copies of this same survey. So if you'd scan that, we're going to ask you right now to take that. If you're joining us online, we would ask uh, if you're a local member of the Hills, maybe you're watching on, online right now. For, for different reasons, but we'd still ask you to scan this and take part if you are a local member of the Hills Church. Let's pull that QR code back up for just a second. We'll give you just a little bit longer for those who are trying to do that at our campuses. And make sure we're going to give you some time right now. This is how important this is to take part in this. So we want to say thank you for participating in this 
You'll be able to finish that up if you're doing that digitally or if you uh, finish your, your paper copy. When we're done with service, uh, if you're in person with a paper copy, if you just drop that in one of our generosity boxes on the way out. Uh, thank you so much. Through this vision, there's going to be different, different things that we're going to be doing to continue to learn and grow as a church. And uh, you just helped us take one of those steps together. Thank you. Okay. Church family meeting over. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Building a Future. And uh, as, as Rick explained, we are going to be journeying through the book of Nehemiah, following uh, his story and the people of Israel's story, and, and letting that become a little bit of a platform to talk about the future we're building towards with this new vision. And so as we begin turning to Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to just point out a little bit of a, a timestamp between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So you'll see that in chapter 1, when Nehemiah begins, it's in the month of Kislev. That was actually in the winter. That's actually when Hanukkah uh, happens, uh, the Jewish holiday. And so when we start in chapter 2, it says in the month of Nisan. Now that is about four and a half months later. You're in springtime. So last week we saw that in the month of Kislev, in the winter, Nehemiah gets word about Jerusalem, the capital city in Israel, in, the, in, in Judah. And here's that it is in disrepair. It's Walls have been destroyed, and he is distraught knowing that this is a shame, not only for the people of the city, but for God. And yet, it's been four and a half months, and he's been able to do nothing except pray, seemingly do nothing anyway. And all of that is about to change as we begin Nehemiah chapter 2, as he is serving as the cupbearer to the king in Persia. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Now, Nehemiah was afraid for two reasons. Reason number one is that it was Persian custom that if you were in the presence of royalty, you needed to always have a, a happy disposition. You needed to always look happy because it was said that the, the king, the very king's presence was bringing you joy. And so by not being happy in the king's presence, Nehemiah is potentially offending the king. And this is risking not only his job, but maybe even his life. That's reason number one. Reason number two that Nehemiah was very afraid is because of what he is about to say next. Verse three, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Okay, um, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but uh, you need to know that the royal court would have gotten uncomfortably quiet when the cupbearer says this to the king. Nehemiah is referencing the city of Jerusalem, but notice he doesn't even say the city's name, and that's because of the history that this king, Artaxerxes, has had with the city of Jerusalem. 
Earlier in his reign, Artaxerxes got word from people loyal to him near the city of Jerusalem that some Israelites were trying to rebuild the city. And earlier in his reign, this is, this is the letter that some of those loyalists sent to the Persian king. They wrote saying, this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. These subjects loyal to the Persian king are telling him, look, there's a reason we destroyed Jerusalem. You don't want to let this get rebuilt. So the king writes back to them. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Okay, so King Artaxerxes ordered that Jerusalem shouldn't be rebuilt and that it, he considered that city a threat to his royal interests. Now his cupbearer, Nehemiah, has just said, well, the reason I'm upset is because of that city that you've left in ruins. That's the subtext. That's the uncomfortable silence in the royal court. And then the king responds to Nehemiah. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, as I was doing research on this passage, there are times when a king asks a question that is uh, more of a test than an actual open door. And so it's unclear in this moment if King Artaxerxes is actually asking sincerely or if he is baiting this seemingly rebellious cupbearer. And yet for Nehemiah, this is the open door. This is the moment he has been waiting for for four and a half months He's been praying and waiting and in response when the king says, what do you want? In the very next sentence, then I prayed to the God of heaven. We cannot overstate as we pursue this new vision the importance of prayer. Nehemiah has been praying for four and a half months, but that doesn't mean he's going to stop. Even in the moment when he has his chance, he throws up another prayer to the God of heaven. In the words of Dr. Tony Evans, he is talking to one king, but he is praying to the king. And as he prays, he kind of throws this quick prayer, and then he takes a deep breath and he answers the king. In verse 5, I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So if you're following the story here, Nehemiah just asked the king of Persia to reverse his own decree, to go back on his own word so that he can go and rebuild a city that is supposedly rebellious and seditious against the Persian Empire. What's, what's the word for that? Stupid? Bold? Risky? Faithful? Maybe it's a combination of all of those. But it is certainly an act of faith. 
And today we are going to highlight what I'm going to call three faith mantras that we're going to need as a church and as a people as we move into this new vision that we see in the faith of Nehemiah. And if you're taking notes, here's the first mantra. Faith says it's worth the risk. What Nehemiah did was incredibly risky. He's risking his job. He's risking his life. He is even risking that he might stir up even more wrath from King Artaxerxes to pour out on the Israelites. But faith says, if it's right, it's worth the risk. If it's God-honoring, it's worth the risk. Now, what we need to see is that risky doesn't mean foolhardy. Nehemiah is tactful as he makes this request. He never says the name of the city of Jerusalem. He references it in a respectful way. He speaks to the king in a respectful way. He makes what I would call a strategic risk, but it is a risk nonetheless because Nehemiah understands that faith and risk are not two things you can separate if you are following God in this broken world. Now, I remember going through a hiring process uh, a few years, years ago trying to recruit somebody to, to join our staff here at the Hills. And they were out of state, and their corporate job was paying them significantly more money. And if they came on our team, they were going to lose some, some accrued vacation. And so my pitch to this person was basically, come work more for less pay. You can imagine how that went over in their household. The numbers were not in their favor, but, but God was. And they sensed this call, and they took a step of faith and joined our team. And I remember as they were preparing to accept the job on the phone, they said, you know, I think this is just going to be more of a leap of faith than I wanted it to be. That's somebody who understands that a step of faith will involve some level of risk. And yet faith that acts in confidence in God is willing to say it's worth the risk. See, here's the challenge. Many of us would readily say, we want to do something for God, but, but maybe we don't want to take that vulnerable step. We want, we want to see how we could be faithful to the Lord, but we don't necessarily want to equate faith with risk. But as a church, we believe God is calling us into a season in which we need to continue to say, it's worth the risk. We are supporting missionaries I'm not allowed to name in countries I'm not allowed to reference because lives would be endangered if that information got into the wrong hands. But those missionaries have all said it's worth the risk. We know there's a chance some of the church plants that we support in this new season won't make it past their second anniversary, but we readily say it's worth the risk. We know that launching Campus 4 and 5 will cause us to have some growing pains as a church. And even for our launch teams, it may be experienced in that first year as a burden, especially if they're going to do set up and tear down in some kind of a, a school or an auditorium of some kind. But we've said as a team, it's worth the risk. It was worth it for Nehemiah. And here's how the king responds. Nehemiah records, it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Now that on its own would have been incredible enough. Jaws would have dropped in the Persian court that day. But Nehemiah isn't done risking a little bit more. Verse 7. 
I also said to him, okay, pro tip, if it seems like you've finished a conversation with a king and he's already done you a favor, maybe don't go in a second time. But Nehemiah, he's going to take the risk. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Okay. Nehemiah just goes from, may I have permission to do something that previously you said I wasn't allowed to do, to now saying, will you please fund and protect the effort for me to do something you said I wasn't allowed to do? And yet at the same time, we see in this moment another aspect of an active faith. Because Nehemiah, it's clear in this moment, was not just praying for four and a half months. He was also planning He knew in that moment what it would take in order to accomplish these things, even though he didn't know how he was going to get them. And yet, as Nehemiah records what happened that day, when he makes this request for the king to basically give him safe passage and then to provide some of the resources and the timber needed for the work that will be done and for his own home, he records and he says, And because the hand of my gracious king was on me. Wait, look at that verse again. That's not what he said. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah understands, man, that timber, it may be in a royal park, but you know what? It was made and owned by the sovereign king of kings. He owns everything. He's sovereign over every highway, and if his gracious hand is upon me, I will be taken care of. And at the same time, we see a Nehemiah who's willing to plan even before he has these things in hand. And so here's our second faith mantra. Plan like God can handle it. Even before God opened the door, even before God provided, Nehemiah was planning in faith. There were many things that were beyond him, and yet he believed, man, if it's beyond me, it's on God to provide. I'm going to prepare. God's going to be the one who will provide. But sometimes we're, we're like Nehemiah in chapter 1. Sometimes we're quick to pray. But sometimes we pray with no plan for what we would do if God actually answered our prayer. One of my first jobs in ministry was at this small little community church in Louisville, Kentucky. The biggest Sunday that we ever had was 65 people, and normally attendance was about half that. I was, uh, the, the church was in between ministers, and so I was serving in an interim capacity just for a six-month stint. I was the uh, part-time interim associate minister, so you hear how far down the pecking order I was. But, but on uh, my first day, I, I showed up on the property, and I met the, the lead interim minister, whose name was Ron, and we were both there to meet Bob. Bob was the one and only elder of this little community church, a one elder church. I've never seen it before. Bob toured us around the facility that day, beautiful old building built around the turn of the century, showed us the auditorium, showed us some kind of dingy classrooms in a basement, showed us the little kitchenette, and then Bob showed us the baptistry. We had to work to kind of get it uncovered, and when we did, I saw something that uh, I had never seen at that point in my life. 
a dry baptistry. Bob explained that baptisms were very infrequent at the little church. And that on top of that, it was a bit of a hassle and even an extra expense to try and keep fresh water in the baptistry. And so here it was. We were a church with a dry baptistry. That is a sad sentence. Now pause for a moment. If you had asked anyone in that church, do you pray for more people to come to Christ? They would have said, yes, but the baptistry was dry. Are you asking God for anything you aren't ready to receive? Standing there that day, Ron, the first thing he said as the lead interim minister of that little church was, well, first thing we need to do is get some water in there. And he didn't know it, but he taught me a lifelong lesson about faith that day, about faith in action. Active faith prepares trusting God will provide. Because it would have been easy to focus on all the things that we couldn't do. We couldn't change that church overnight. We couldn't magically grow attendance by Sunday. We couldn't guarantee somebody was going to get baptized that week. But we could put water in that baptistry. Maybe one of the best things for, for some of us to do is to begin to realize that, that the, one of the en- enemy's tactics will get us to focus on all the things we can't do in order to get us to ignore the things we can. One of the best ways to sour Nehemiah's start in this call would, would have been for him to focus on all the things that were outside the bounds of his influence. And yet for four and a half months, it's clear, he not only prayed, he planned, he prepared. He was ready when the moment came because it was going to be God's job to provide, but his to prepare. Faith postures itself ready for God to move. And by the way, live at all of our campuses, I want you to know, we have baptistries and they have water in them. We don't always have baptisms planned every week, but we are prepared for God to move. And in the back, we got, we got towels, we got shirts, we got a change of clothes if you came not ready, and yet God was ready to intersect with your life and call you to faith in Jesus Christ. Like, we're, we're ready for God to move, and yet at the same time, we know it's his gracious hand. The Apostle Paul said, we, we can, some can plant, some can water, but it's God who gives the increase. We know it's God. We're quick to give him credit. And even as we pursue this new vision, we have spent months preparing. Now we're holding these plans loosely, open to to God's influence, the Holy Spirit's leading, and yet we are planning as if God might put his gracious hand upon our church in order to impact nations and generations. Because when he moves, it will be so obvious that it was him and not us. Nehemiah did all that planning, and yet he walks away from that meeting with the king, and he doesn't have any credit. He's quick to say, this was God. Man, it's going to be the same for us. I don't care how many meetings we've had or how, how many plans we do, how many committees we start in order to work on some of these goals. It's going to be the Lord if any of these goals are accomplished. Amen? No plan is a substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. So plan like God can handle it because when the hand of God moves, nothing's going to stop it. That's clear in Nehemiah chapter 2. He gets everything he asked for. Stands on a political landmine and walks away. Not just unscathed, but fully comped with everything he needs. And so he goes to Jerusalem. Verse 11, we'll pick up. 
I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. Listen close to this next sentence. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. All right, this is not the main point of the message, but just we, we got to pause for just a second. Look back at what Nehemiah just said. It's God's vision on Nehemiah's, in Nehemiah's heart for the city of Jerusalem. What God puts in our heart is rarely just for us. Faith is not just my subconscious experience of God or my, my, my inner life related to God. It is that, but it is not just that. I've talked with our senior pastor, and he's been quick to say, he said this in front of staff, in front of elders, this isn't, this isn't Rick's vision. He says this is God's vision. This isn't the hill's vision for the next five years. This is God's vision. We believe humbly and yet confidently that this is God's vision put on the heart of our church for our community and our world. That's what we believe. It's not our job to, to say it belongs to us. We are stewarding what we believe God has put in our heart. And my prayer, our prayer is that God would put this in all of our hearts, that we are carrying it, stewarding our time, our energy, our resources for the sake of our community and our world, for the sake of foster kids, for the sake of asylum seekers, for the sake of those who are trying to get out of the, the cycle of addiction and bondage, for the sake of so many, for the sake of the unreached who don't have even a scrap of God's word translated in their own native tongue. It's our job to carry the vision in our hearts, but we say it, it belongs to God. And it is not just for us, it is for the world. Amen. So Nehemiah goes on a tour to finally see in person what he's heard about. Verse 13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire, as he surveys the wreckage, verse 14 continues, Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. There's so much rubble, he can't even get his, uh, his horse or ride through there. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. He goes around. Finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Verse 17, here it is. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Things seem like it's a great start. Verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. 
We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem's ground zero and sees how bad things really are. In fact, it's worse than bad. It's a mess. The walls and gates are destroyed. He hasn't even gotten started yet, and there's already influential opposition in the area. We're going to, in the, the chapters ahead, we're going to hear more from Sanballat the Oronite, Tobiah the Ammonite, their, their crew. They likely would have been some of the ones who Nehemiah needed protection from on his journey with the king's help. It's a mess as he begins the work. But here's the thing. Works of restoration only begin in broken places. No matter the condition of things, here's our third and final mantra of faith. It's not too messy for God. Nehemiah saw just how bad Jerusalem's walls were, but he knew just how good Jerusalem's God is. And so he's confident the God of heaven will give us success. He is a restorer. He is a rebuilder. That's who our God is. And we believe that's true too. We believe through that God's love reminds us we are never too messy for God's grace. Look, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, maybe it's later on podcast, maybe you're, you're live with us right now. I don't care what's happening in your life. It doesn't get to have the claim that it has disqualified you from being connected to God. Doesn't matter how many people you've hurt, it's not too messy for God. Well, my, my, my marriage is falling apart, it's not too messy for God. I've hurt so many people close to me, it's not too messy for God. I, I'm failing school and I'm lying to my parents about it, it's not too messy for God. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore, it's not too messy for God. It doesn't matter if it's doubt or insecurity or sin, to borrow language from our Celebrate Recovery ministry, whether it's a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up, it is not too messy for God to begin a renewal project in your life. So at our church, with our new vision, here's, here's a Nehemiah-esque survey of some of the work that needs to be done. Last year, the CDC reported that some 13% of Americans reported starting or increasing drug and alcohol in, intake in order to cope with the stress of the pandemic. Recovery and freedom are desperately needed. The Dallas Morning News reported that last April, 282 kids slept in CPS offices because there was no home that would take them. There's work to do. Across the Atlantic, Livingstone International University is still in an extremely difficult season due to pandemic restrictions in Uganda. They need our prayers. We know that brand new church plants we're talking about supporting right now will face unexpected financial and cultural challenges. They need our support more than ever. Locally, man, let's walk the wall for a second. We are launching a new vision in 2021 with approximately 2,500 fewer people attending our church in person than 2019. The pandemic has created a bizarre scenario through online reach in which in one sense we are ministering to more people than ever, but we are baptizing fewer than we have in years. 
Many of our kids and volunteer teams have struggled week by week since coming back to in-person services last year. Now, let's be honest about the wall. Launching a new vision in this season is messy. But we know it's not too messy for God. And like Nehemiah, we have felt the energy of a group saying, let's put our hands to this good work. We have felt and sensed this dependence on the gracious hand of our God because if he doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. Nehemiah led an important work of renewal, and he was confident to respond, God will give us success. But he could have said it with these words from a different leader of renewal. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus could have been saying that about a vision or a group of people pursuing a God-sized dream, but he didn't. He was talking about salvation. As much as I admire and want to learn from somebody like Nehemiah, he's not the reason I have faith. It's because of Jesus and his renewal project in our world and in my life. Jesus left the throne room, not of some Persian king, but the throne room of heaven, willing to take on flesh, be fully man and fully God, because Jesus said it's worth the risk. For the joy set before him, he endured a life in which he could be hurt in ways he never had been before. Spit upon, beaten, betrayed, whipped, dragged through a crowd, and put on a cross. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus said, it's worth the risk for your salvation and for mine. Jesus, when they laid him down on that cross beam, he extended the gracious hands of God to be nailed to a tree. And as he died, the Gospel of Luke records, his last words are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Jesus knew God could handle it. Though he would be put in a grave, three days later, Jesus rose by the power of the Holy Spirit because it wasn't too messy for God. No setting is too broken. No grave is too sealed for the power of the gracious hand of God to move and through that Easter story, we have redemption. We have renewal. He's been working restoration in our lives, and we want that message for the whole world. This is, this is the rebuilder that I put my faith in. He's the one that because of everything he did, we can say it's worth the risk today. Because all of his authority and his power, we can plan like God can handle it. Because of his resurrection work, we know it's not too messy for God to come among his people and move in power and do something through us we could never do on our own. And so like the Israelites, now we want to say humbly, but with excitement, let's get to work. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that you were willing not to try and help us from a distance, but you came and you walked among the ruins of our world. You saw the damage sin had done. You saw the work 
of the enemy and you came to save us and restore us and rebuild. Thank you, Jesus. Would you increase our faith that we would say it's worth the risk? Would you increase our faith that we would believe you really can handle any situation? Would you increase our faith to have mercy on anybody we meet because nothing's too messy for God, including ourselves? Lord, would you increase our faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Savior? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.